and welcome to Unidentified Wargamer. Each week I interview a wargamer and identify them in the hobby. This week I've got um, Big Dino or Trent Dennison. How are you going? I'm going well, Sammy. Thank you. How are you? Good, good, good. It's good to see your face. It's been a little while since we've seen each other. I think last time, what was it, down at uh, uh, Irresistible Force down on the Gold Coast? Yes, Scott Store. We were playing a bit of Marvel. We did, yes. Yes. I smashed you, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, when... Um, Hood does 12 damage to Hulk, yes, in <laughs> one go. It's all good, mate. Normal. Yeah. Marvel dice. <laughs> How's your week been? Yeah, no, good. Uh, obviously, public holiday up here in uh, in Queensland for the Labor Day weekend. So short work week and a good week of, um, of relaxation on the cards. Mm-hmm. Has it been a long hobby week then with that extra day? Uh, most, most of the time it's a long hobby week for me. Um, these days I'm, I'm mostly focused on the painting side of things. So pretty much paint every day. Um, so from that perspective, yeah, long hobby week, but, <laughs> uh, this week yeah, about normal. So only, only a couple of models painted this week. Okay. Only a couple, <laughs> probably smash out a lot of people's normal standard there. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it down the track, but yeah, I, I started painting armies way back when, and and that's just tri- yeah kept going. So I, I paint models really quickly. So. Okay, uh, what has like been your hobby for this week? Have you got um what sort of you been working on your table? Is it more display models, or you've been painting up some smaller models? I uh, I put together a couple of the new MCP models. So I put together um, uh, Emma Frost and Psylocke, and uh, a couple of the other new ones, uh, Beta Ray Bill and Ulick. Um, to get ready to paint those and I painted Rhino um, just, just on the weekend just gone for a tournament so yeah just a few MCP and then I've got a couple of display projects I'm working on as well. Have you had many tabletop games in? Uh, I normally play Marvel on a Thursday night down at my local store uh, but we had a tournament on the weekend just gone um, and so we didn't play this week we, we gave it a miss this week so the only gaming I did was Tuesday night board games Mm-hmm. which I do every week with a group of fine, upstanding gentlemen. And uh, <laughs> uh, this week, uh, what did we play this week? Oh, we played Great Western Trail, which is a fantastic board game. Do you mainly focus on miniature board games or like just your generic board games? Do you have a preference there? Uh, good question. So uh, one of the one of the things about the hobby that I've really enjoyed over a long period of time is um, – finding a way to immerse myself in it completely and wholeheartedly to the point where I hate it. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I I started uh, miniature wargaming Warhammer many, many years ago. And then uh, because I went through a long period of playing competitively, uh, what I've found nowadays I enjoy much more is just, just having the social aspects with my mates. And so these days I do tend to find myself playing more, just board games that you can pick up. There's no real mental load involved. There's nothing you need to stay on top of to be competitive at the top end of the meta or anything like that, <laughs> right? Um, and, and yeah, occasionally just throwing some dice with Marvel. So, uh, so yeah, mostly just fun, simple board games. Yeah, fair enough. It makes for like a nice social evening. It's not some high stress sort of tense night where you come away more stressed than when you, when you started. Exactly. Yeah. We, 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 I've, we laugh so hard on Tuesday nights. We just, we absolutely crack up. So um, it's, it's something I look forward to every week. We've been actually doing it for eight years. We found out this year, Wow! every Tuesday night. <laughs> Is that the same group of guys? You've sort of switched to a few people. Same, same few wow. guys. Yeah. <laughs> There's five of us 
And usually we'll have at least four of us there. So usually everyone, everyone misses a week every every now and then. So it'll either be four or five and we play we play every week. It's fantastic. That is a solid commitment. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> well, you spoke about it earlier, sort of early uh, gaming career. Do you want to get into how you got into tabletop wargaming and then we'll get into your display painting and that afterwards? Sure. Um, I love I love talking about my my history in the game. I, I remember vividly. Uh, I, I first picked up my first figures from a store called Dragon's Keep. It was in Strathpine on the north side of Brisbane, um, and I was in grade five. And uh, they had an awesome little hobby shop. And back then, we're talking like 1995 or whatever, mate. It was nowhere. We didn't even have a Warhammer shop in Brisbane at that time. So, Dragon's Keep had. You know, Dungeons and Dragons. They had a Dungeons and Dragons arcade game there, um, and some little Warhammer boxes on the shelf. So I remember the first box that I ever bought was Empire Halberdiers. They were the little plastic guys that stand there like that. <laughs> you know those ones. Oh. The two D pretty much two yeah, D models. Yeah, and they started out coming up with ten in a box, and then by the time they stopped releasing, I think they came up with six in a box. But um, yeah, so that was that was when I started a long, long time ago, and and fell in love with it. Uh, had a little group of mates that I played with at school and um, we all ended up getting into it at the same time. We split like the Warhammer box set, which was the Lizardmen and Britannia box set back then. And uh, then we also split the, the, the 40K one. So we had one guy with Space Marines, one guy with, uh, I think it was Orcs in that box. Um, yeah, we went to a few tournaments. It was the first tournament I went to. It was in 1998. It was called Maelstrom. Um, it was held over at Mount Cravat University of TAFE. Uh, took my lizard men to that tournament and uh, and fell in love with with tournament gaming and pretty much played in just about every tournament I could get my hands on. Um, yeah, from from then until two thousand and eight. Um, so over that period of time, I started working for Games Workshop, bought about five thousand armies. <laughs> That's the joy of the fifty percent oh, discount. Fifty percent discount, mate. It was criminal. <laughs> I, I ate two minute noodles so I could have a full chaos <laughs> chaos demon army. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I have such a great memory of that time and I, I got really involved in the tournament scene um, after I left Games Workshop, which was in 2003. And we, um, the, the mates that I made through there, we are still friends to this day. You know, I've got um, the guy I play with on Tuesday nights, Luke. I met him through through Warhammer back in, in that period of time. And um, yeah, huge, huge extended career of many, many tournaments uh, which culminated for Warhammer in, in flying overseas, competing in the, the European Team Championships for Australia, which was awesome. The ETC. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure if they still do it for AOS. I haven't really kept addressing it now. I literally recorded a podcast the other day. Uh, we're, they're called AOS Worlds now. Yeah, right. Uh, cool. We've got 28 teams of eight players, or 26 teams of eight players. Awesome. Yeah. So they're doing that next month, I believe. Wow. Yeah, so it's moving along quite fast. They broke away from the ETC because of the um, the way they were doing 40K and they wanted to do their own thing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, the, the ETC that um, or the yeah the ETC that I went to was uh, was 2008 was okay. the year, it was the year that I attended. It was the same year that they released Eighth Edition of Warhammer. Uh, might have actually been 2012 or something like that. I can't remember. It's a fucking long time, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, the the there was 50 teams. There was, there was, wow. every, there was, you know, just every country is represented. And uh, the team that I went with, we, we ended up coming fourth 
that year. That's solid. Yeah, which nice. which was awesome. And um, but it was, it was such a fantastic experience. It was held in a little little town called Munster in Germany. Um, and and you know I've I've been really fortunate over many many years to go to lots of international events like that. But every one of them feels like a once in a lifetime experience. You know, you're traveling with some of your best mates and, and sharing something you're super passionate about and and getting to compete at, on a world stage. So did, have you been? No, I haven't. No, I, um, I wasn't competitive enough for the last one. Uh, and I didn't apply for this one either. Yeah. Okay. But Scott has though. Scott made the team uh, oh, yeah. on the Irisable Force Burley team. Awesome. Uh, so he's going over. So that'd be quite exciting. Oh, if you want some tips, tell him to give me a buzz. We'll do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about the competitive game draws you in, has kept you in for 13 odd years? Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. Yeah. So I think for over over a period of time, right, that what, what drives you changes. And I think early on that the drive for everyone is they want to win tournaments. You know, they want they want to be successful. In what they're doing and and that was early on you know a driver for me but i was fortunate enough to to be relatively successful over a period of time and and so the desire to win an event didn't really continue to, to drive me it, it became more about um honing my skills and, and playing the way i could and i think this this might sound a bit wanky right but but <laughs> but chasing the perfect game you know, like feeling like I walked away from a game and I didn't make any mistakes. You know, I completely removed dice from the equation. Every decision I made was the right decision at the time, you know, and and feeling like I played the perfect game. I don't think I ever did. I don't think I ever felt that way um, in any in any game. But I think that was what I was chasing towards, you know, after 10 years of competing uh, in, in, in Warhammer stuff. It just became about trying to be the best version of myself that I could be. Which, as I said, sounds super wanky, right? But <laughs> as I reflect back on it, you know, it it it's, it just stops being about winning a tournament. You know, when when you've won two or three or five or whatever, it, the, the desire is not about winning. It's about you know being better than the last one. You know, being a better player. And, and um, one thing I'll talk about a little bit later on, I'm sure, is is we we um, had this mantra um, as the Australian team, the Australian Warhammer team, and carried over into war machine and stuff about wanting to play um hard but fair right so we, we we were always you know really competitive but we weren't dickheads about it and you know we wanted to play by the rules and if we you know did the wrong thing it, like adam gilchrist mate if, if you if you nick <laughs> and you walk right so if we did the wrong thing we we, we don't up to it and i think that um, mentality carries over into again you, you're not it's not about winning at all costs. It's about winning the best way, you know, being the best player you can and competing as hard as you can, but being fair, you know? So I think that works really well for a tournament scene as well, because you're not always playing the top players. You're sometimes in your game one or two reversing new people. And so if you're playing fair, you're not using that whack mentality, they still get a fun, good game out of it. They just sort of see the way that you play and hopefully, if they're a competitive nature, they aspire to play like that. Absolutely, I think that's great at building community and competitive spirit. Um, the, a lot of I find the demographic for this podcast is a lot of competitive players, uh, so I find a lot of people have that same mentality as well. Is is great for community building as well as not making it hard for new people to pick up and get into the spirit of the game. 
yeah, it, it, it's it's crucial that you that you encourage the newer players. And um, when you when you go into a game like that, you know, obviously you can kick the shit out of them, right? You know, you can. <laughs> it's fine. But you know, what what value are you getting out of that? It's much better to try and entice them to want to play more, entice them to want to be better, and you know, help them a little bit whilst also showing them, you know, you got a long way to go, son. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it's interesting. Warhammer is a really good game for that. Uh, War Machine was very much not a good game for that because War Machine was very much, if you didn't understand every iteration of what could happen, you were going to lose um, really, really hard. You're going to lose hard. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, good, good, uh, good. Most competitive players, mate, that I've met that are the, the, the top end are all really good people. You know, that the only bad experiences I've ever had in, in gaming have come from people that aren't quite there and are really trying hard to get there, mm-hmm. you know. And then they put that pressure and that... On themselves, yeah. And then, then, they, then they become a worse version of themselves and then they do dumb things and they make mistakes and they get, like, angry about it and do things they regret. So that's, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I've not heard, like I have heard from a lot of competitive people about War Machine, but I've mm. not experienced or seen much of it because I feel like a lot of people talk about it more as a past game and not a game that's gone very far in the last sort of five or 10 years. It's more, sorry, the last five or four or five years rather than the last 10 years. It seems to have backtracked quite a bit, possibly because of the community and the way the game was played. I'm not too sure there. It, it had a wonderful glory days when they released third edition. It, it was uh, right around the time that Warhammer 8th edition came out and there was a big exodus of players out of Warhammer 8th edition into War Machine. Really awesome time to be playing it. Um, but what happened is they, they kept releasing models and every one of those models you had to understand because the, the, the game of War Machine is a little bit different to Warhammer in that you have a couple of win conditions. You have a scenario condition similar to Warhammer, but you also have an assassination. And if your leader gets assassinated, the game's over. That's it. You lose. And there was many, many ways to catch people out and kill their cast without them sort of knowing if they didn't understand what was coming. Right. You know, so you had to be like, okay, I need to be at least 13 inches away from that guy, or he can do this, throw this guy into me and then I'm dead. If you didn't know that you just lost. Right. It sounds like very much like a gotcha game at that point. It, 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 It is a gotcha game when you knew and when both people were operating on the same level of understanding and knowledge, incredible strategic game. But Unfortunately, they got to a point where there's 150 war casters in the game and you need to know every single one of them. If you don't, you'll lose. And so that barrier of entry kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where, you know, unless you've been playing for 12 months, you weren't going to win a game. And there's very few people I know that are willing to spend 12 months in a game where they lose every time, right? Yep. (laughs) Especially if they wanted to be competitive and then they can't get to that level because it just takes too long. Yep. It's very interesting to hear that because it seems like with the gotcha, it's an instant win rather than, I know Warhammer has a few gotchas, but they don't seem as so drastic to affect the whole game. And you still get to play a game in Warhammer, right? You know, you might you might have your best unit get trashed or, you know, some shit might go wrong, but usually you can still have a game, you still roll dice. In War Machine, your character dies, that's it. It's game over. The game stops. You pack up your models and you leave the table. Okay. <laughs> so, there's competitive games that are filmed that go for 20 minutes, mate. Like... That's yeah it. okay yeah <laughs> i i did remember i don't think i watched a whole lot of it because i didn't understand it but i remember you were doing a commentation on simon uh hall's game and i'm like yeah. oh 
Where does that link work? And then I realized seeing you and Simon and stuff that it goes sort of back that far. Long way, yeah. Yeah, I did. We, we used to commentate games of War Machine. There's a couple of videos. There's actually some videos online of me playing in the Iron Gauntlet World Championships over in Seattle. They got commentators. They got heaps of cameras doing shots of it, which is what they're doing now with with Warhammer and and, yep. uh, and AOS and stuff. But it was it was really big for War Machine back then. Live streamed on Twitch. It's fantastic. It was the it was the final. It was awesome. <laughs> what was sort of the scene like? Is it quite a large scene, or is it dwind- is obviously dwindled quite a bit? It's, yeah, and, and and again, the, as you said, mate, like um, that barrier to entry has stopped new players from getting into the game, and we just start to see the game die off. And unfortunately, they haven't really come up with a way to solve for that. And so, you know, it's not really it's not really getting as much public publicity or as press. They had a big. Um, you know, a couple of big departures from the company that runs it um, moved actually over to AMG, Atomic Mass Games, and make Marvel <laughs> Crisis Protocol, which is fascinating. But, um, yeah, the, it, it was a huge scene back then, right? That They actually um, took the Warhammer ETC model and did a War Machine World Team Championships, um, which ran for, I think it's still running now. Or it, it might not be running now, but it ran for five, six years, and it was unbelievable. Um, uh, we, we had, I think, 60 teams at one point um, every Every country was allowed two teams, um, teams of five. And, yeah, so there were 60, 60 teams, 30 countries competing. We went to the one in Poland. Uh, we went to one in Austria. We went to one in Ireland. It was the best. Yeah. So you, you've travelled over a lot, a lot of the world playing competitive games then? Yeah, lots lots of places. Uh, pretty silly, really, how many times I've travelled overseas. I think... <laughs> So I did. I did two. I did two um, Iron Gauntlets, which were in Seattle. I did uh, four War Machine World Team Championships. I did the Guild Ball World Champs, which was in uh, England. I did the Warhammer ETC twice, and I think that might be it. Okay. So have you eight. got a favourite then? Out of all of these Ooh. international things, have you got a favourite one? Ooh. That's a fantastic question. Um, look, the first Warhammer ETC is very special, very special to me. Um, you know, some some really incredible memories. But I think probably my favourite one um, uh, would be the very first time I went to the Iron Gauntlet in Seattle. Uh, was at, at, held at a convention run by Privateer Press called Lock and Load, four days of, of War Machine. They had, um, uh, you know, cosplay and tournaments running all night. Uh, the very first year that I went, I went with my guy, uh, my, my mate from Oz Machine, the other the War Machine podcast we did, and we just had the the most amazing time, mate. It was just we were very famous back then in the War Machine world, so pe- <laughs> people are asking for autographs. We're signing autographs, signing shirts, getting photos with guys. It was great. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> what about it made it so memorable? Was it just because it was like an in- like your first international big event? Or was it like the community or the competitiveness? What about it made it so special? Look, I think I just felt really, so the the way that that particular event worked to actually compete in the Iron Gauntlet, you had to win a ticket, um, and there was only sixteen tickets across the whole world. Um, so for me to get into that event, I had to win from a ticket from Australia, and I, I was able to um, finish number one in Australia and 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 win that ticket, and then my mate. James came second and he won the second ticket. So we both got to go over there by virtue of you know our performances over an extended period of time. But it just felt really special to be able to do that together. 
Um, you know, we, we were able to do some fundraising to help us get over there, which which is really humbling, you know, like um, to have other people help support you to get over there to compete, you know, in a way on behalf of them. But it was just, it was a really, you know, wonderful, humbling experience. And I came second at that event. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, my mate James actually won the another <laughs> one of the events there. Yep. So we walked away and... and um, just for like, oh, this is awesome. The yeah, one of the best experiences we had. So it sounds like a very exciting time, especially when you can come away with solid results after posting solid results to get there. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's less about when I look back on it. Right, it's not the results I remember. It's it's all the fucking around that we did, and you know, <laughs> just just having a great time. One of the Americans said to me, "I, I can't understand how you haven't been shot yet." <laughs> <laughs> I'm Australian, mate. That's just that's what we're yeah. all like. <laughs> <laughs> With playing all these competitive games at such a top end, what do you think has like allowed you to remain competitive in a lot of different game systems? What do you feel is like a strong attribute for allowing that to happen? Autism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think my my um, couple of mates think I might be slightly autistic around certain things. Okay. Um, no, look, it the, the competing at a top level in any in any sport in any field it requires the same attributes right it's 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 not about understanding you know warhammer tactics or or anything like that right it's 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 hard work that's repetition it's it's being able to immerse yourself in knowledge and i think that the one thing that that i have that not many other people that I've met have is just an absolute singular focus around continuing to improve. So if I lose a game, the first question I ask myself is what could I have done differently? Right. I don't ask myself, I don't say, oh fuck, I rolled real badly. Anyone who anyone who says, man, if I had a roll better, I would have beat you. I immediately write them off as a player for the for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> that person will never beat me. If you ask yourself, what did I do? What decisions did I make? That I, that, that I could have changed, that could have changed the result, that's when you start to go, okay, well, cool, because then, then you can improve. And I would, I would ask myself that after every game, every game. And, you know, I, I, would, I would play three, four, five games a week. Uh, I would constantly challenge players that were better than me. And I would be asking myself that question every game, bang, bang, bang. And I think, yeah, the, the, the focus, the drive to, to want to be better, um, is what separated me and was allowed me to be successful. It was, it wasn't. I'm a grandmaster of strategy, <laughs> and I wasn't. It wasn't even um, that that I had more knowledge than anyone else because you know there's there was a lot of people at that level that understood every rule of the game and every interaction and you know stats and can memorize that sort of stuff. But it was just that question, mate. That singular question: What could I have done differently in that last game? How do I improve? Over and over. And then even as someone that's possibly not able to see where the fault was, you can always ask your opponent, which is exactly. what I find I do a lot after the games, especially if you've come up against someone that's a much better player, they'll be able to see where you went wrong yeah. and tell you and explain you that pivotal point. And once you understand that, you can apply it then to your future games and hopefully you'll learn from those sort of things. An important point about what you just said there, it's, it's, a, it's a super relevant point, right? But you've also got to be receptive to that. You've got to actually yes. be willing to hear that feedback, you know? Not many people like hearing 
when they've done something <laughs> wrong. You know, and it's, it makes us feel shit house. And so we usually just dismiss that and go, no, no, no. But if you are genuinely accept someone's feedback and then reflect on it and, you know, maybe things they said are accurate, maybe they're, they're not always um, right, but being able to hear that and learn from their perspective um, is really, really useful to have. And I would, I would offer most of the time if my opponent, hey, did you want any any thoughts on your game? If they said no, then it's fine. I wouldn't wouldn't be like, well, you were shit, mate. You should have done this, <laughs> you know. But but if they wanted me to talk about, you know, what what I saw as them mistakes that they made, it was good. But you know, the the getting into your opponent's headspace and mindset is another great tool of working out how to be better because people see things in different ways. You know, one of that guy, a guy I traveled overseas with, James. He and I would have vigorous discussions after the game where we both think the other one was wrong, right? And we'd, <laughs> we'd be like, no, you're fucking wrong. This is what was happening. And he's like, no, no, no. But it's because we're looking at it from opposite sides of the table, right? So yeah, that discussion, again, always, how can you be better? And then with the, the way you play games, do you find you have a play style or, or a way you play the game that will be, it goes across all game systems? Yes. Yeah, this is this is a um, an absolute concrete fact about me i i I gravitated towards uh fast glass cannon hard hitting um melee forces in every game i played so um i played wood elves a lot i played chaos a lot and but both wood elves i was playing a lot of fast hard hitting um stuff uh chaos i was always about chaos knights you know marauder horsemen Lots of fast-moving cavalry. Uh, then in War Machine, it was Cricks, which is like super, super melee, hard-hitting, um, big impact. Uh, and then in Guild Ball, I played Butchers, which was, uh, yeah, big, fast, hard-hitting guys. <laughs> so it's, it's I just like the way that we used to explain it to, um, you know, the, the War Machine guys was I like to, basically put my opponent in a position where they've got a lot of questions that they need to answer. And if they can't answer them or they don't answer them the right way, I win. If they can, then, then I lose. Right. But uh, the, the constantly putting pressure on your opponent from different vectors, from, you know, creating unexpected opportunities of ways you can attack them. And that was always the way that, that I enjoyed the game the most. Okay. That nice, aggressive, action i find a lot of top end competitive players do have those tendencies of being the aggressor not someone that's more reactive or Mm. um will sort of take a back step they're more the ones that are putting the pressure on the whole time which seems to because you're not having to answer many questions yourself you're more posing the question that allows you to have more brain space to then also be thinking about the future a lot more because they're currently focusing on what's happening in front of them while you're able to think one or two steps ahead. Yeah, spot on. It's it's when when you're creating, you know, four or five different questions, it's like, well, I've got to stop that guy. How can I stop that guy? They're trying to they're trying to solve for that. And you're already thinking about your next turn where it's like, okay, well if they stop that, then I know what this guy's going to do. If they go this way, this way, right? You you are already ahead of them. You're streets ahead because you know what they're going to try and do to stop you. And it's, it's, I often find that people that play that style, that, that aggressive, that in your face kind of style tend to be um, stronger personalities at the table. I don't know if you've talked about this much, but you know how when you play a game, there's usually one guy who's kind of like directing the flow of the game. 
you know, where he's like, okay, man, it's your turn. Uh, you know, I think these guys need fours to hit. Uh, yeah, it's 10 dice. I think you rolled 11, right? One guy's always just sort of, you know, like being in charge. And I, that was the kind of person that I was, but obviously didn't try to be a dickhead about it, but, you know, just moving the game along, right? And that, that also feeds into the, well, what are you going to do now, champion? You know, what? Yeah, yeah. how are you going to solve this, right? Yep. Ball's in your court. Good luck. And, and you sound like you enjoy the mind games too. I'll, I'll tell you one thing I used to love doing, right? This is a mind games thing. A lot, a lot of the a lot of the game I used to think was about psychology, right? Because often when you when you get your head down, you're like really disappointed about a bad roll or you know something's gone against you that you didn't think was going to happen. It's often the players that can handle that and move on that do better, right? The the mentality of it. But there's lots of little psychology things you could do in a game. So one of the things I used to do is put a stack of books on one side of my deployment zone, and then people would think that I wasn't going to put anything there. And then halfway through my deployment, I'd pick up, I'd pick up the books and move them and put a unit there. And it would trip people out, right? Because they'd just written that space off. They're like, that guy's not going to use that space. And then I'd move the books and put a unit there. Fucking spun them out. Great play. <laughs> Nothing against it in the rules, mate. Nothing against it in the rules. Yeah. We, um, there's a few things you can do in Age of Sigma where there's teleporting models. You just sit at the back corner where they're disengaged. <laughs> they look like they're in the dead pile. And then you move them, turn two or three, and like, Oh, I forgot all about them sitting there. Uh, and then you get really tripped out by them. <laughs> Good. I love that sort of stuff. <laughs> and if you can't tell by Dino's voice here, Dino, how how tall are you? I'm six foot seven. Yeah, yeah I'm so a monster. <laughs> you're big at the table and then you're a big personality. So you've got all these attributes that sort of lead into it as well. <laughs> mm. I, I, I don't, I hope, right? I hope that I didn't uh, use that in a way that intimidated people, you know, okay. like I, I, I don't feel like I ever did. Someone might call in and say, Dino is a fucking wanker. <laughs> I hate the guy, but I, I was really big on having a fun and fair game. Right. So, but yeah, be, being allowed, being a big person, I'm sure it was intimidating at times for people that, you know, just are nerds and want to play the little toy soldier game. So sorry if I was intimidating anyone. <laughs> I enjoyed our game, so that's the main thing, I think. Thank you, mate. I did too. <laughs> Especially you because you were rolling all the good dice. <laughs> yep, I remember. Yeah, you complaining about the dice, written you off as a player. <laughs> oh, so with your like armies and stuff like that, did you enjoy painting? Did you enjoy that aspect of the hobby? Uh, I loved it. It's okay. probably, it's it's interesting. Like back for many, many years, people would ask me, hey, you know, what, what's your favorite thing about the hobby? And my answer was always painting. Like I, I considered myself a painter more than a gamer for many, 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 many years. And it was only really at the, at the, at the peak of my war machine days that I was like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this gaming malarkey, right? But, mate, I, I painted, um, I used to paint armies for commissions, uh, used, to, used to paint pretty much a new army every, every three to six months um, and, and have painted pretty much nonstop my whole life. Uh, it, yeah, to this day now, it's been 25 years or more in the hobby and I'm still painting. You know, I'm sitting at my painting desk now. I've got all my paints here. I've got my display models over there. I've got, I've got my MCP models behind me just there. If you can't, yeah. no. Brilliant, brilliant audio. Yeah, now, now I can see it, but there's a whole pile of them there. <laughs> I know a lot of competitive players, they focus solely on playing competitive games because you need a lot of time for that. How did you find the time for doing competitiveness at the top end as well as enjoy and do a lot of painting? 
I, I basically lived, breathed, and slept whatever game I was playing. And this is one of the reasons why I've had a divorce and several unsuccessful relationships, right? Um, <laughs> because pretty much I would wake up and the first thing I would be thinking about was, uh, what, you know, how can I make that army slightly better? What can I tweak? You know, can I manipulate that? So there would be there would be days all day at work where I'd just be ticking things over in my head. I used to keep a notebook in my pocket actually that I'd write down <laughs> army ideas. This is back yep. before mobile phones were a big thing. But um, yeah, so I'd have a notebook and everyone at work would think I was doing work, which was great. And I was actually just writing down, you know, should try, uh, you know, Crick's Warjack X Y Z with this caster, pull back back my pocket and then get home and start writing lists and stuff. Um, but it was just, it, it was dedication, right? It was it was thinking about the game uh, all the time, talking about the game with my mates all the time, playing games all the time. And then when I was at home, painting models and thinking about the game while I was painting models. Um, <laughs> it, was a whole, it was a whole lifestyle. And particularly as you're going into, you know, overseas tournaments where you're playing with other team members, you want to give everything. So there was six months of nonstop War Machine or nonstop Warhammer, which is draining. And it's oh, actually, yes. actually one of the reasons why I don't, really compete that much anymore in events or take it all that seriously anymore because it's a consuming lifestyle. Yep, that's fair enough. Do you enjoy the list writing aspect of the hobby as well? Yeah, that, that one of my frustrations with uh, MCP, with Guild Ball um, and, and all of the other games that you know people have tossed up as, I don't know, you love this, you know, you should try this game, has been that that single element has been lacking. Um, you know, War, Warhammer list design was one of the greatest times of my life when models were three points, four points, five points, and you'd make units of 20 or 25 and you'd have to marry up your characters and their magic items and the banners. And, mate, that was the best. I, I, I just I still could probably tell you the points cost for all of my favourite armies and all my favourite guys and, and all of the, the items that I used to enjoy. But that in the skirmish style games, which is what seems to be people go towards now, it's it's much harder to find that level of engagement. I think the other part of it is there's there's a lot of games and there's a lot of it's just that it's really easy to figure out the optimal stuff and the other stuff that sucks. So there's no real challenge in that. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Well, I'm playing a, a thousand point game or whatever it is. Well, these are the best unit. This is the next best unit. I just take those. It doesn't. It's not as fun as it used to be. So, if someone cracks that and cracks a game that has great and interesting list design in the same way, and is able to have that level of competitiveness that that War Machine used to have, that could that could be the thing that drags me back into competitive play. Okay. I think the biggest thing about that is you need that small minutia. You need a lot of small little bits and pieces. Details. Because, yeah. Yes, with the skirmish games their limited model range. So then you're only playing with a different amount of factors. And then the, obviously the more you add to it, then the more factors you get available to access. Yeah. Like Guild Ball is a great example, right? So I don't know if you ever played Guild Ball. I didn't know. Yeah, right. So Dead game though. It was No, it was an awesome game. Also dead, by the no, way. Yeah, I, dead now. Yeah. I ruined it. I killed it. No one could beat me. Um, <laughs> I said, basically what would happen is you'd pick a guild, right? And, and it was it's kind of like soccer blood bowl in case you don't know too much about it where... It's just soccer instead of gridiron. You'd pick a guild and that guild would have 10 or 12 models available and you would bring six to the game. 
So your list design was pick six models. There was no points costs. It was just, you pick the six models that you want, which sounds great. And it, it, it was great because it was easy, right? You'd pick six models, you sit down, you play the game. And it all became about how well you played the game. But the problem was when you left the table, then you and your mates would have nothing to talk about. You wouldn't be like, well, what do you think I should try next? What list do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? Should I try this magic item? You know, maybe I'll try this unit instead of this unit. It's just like nothing to talk about away from the table. And after you'd already exhausted, okay, is this guy good? Yes, no. Is this guy good? Yes, no. Are there any cool combinations? Yes, no. That was it. So we, we ended up stopped talking about Guild Ball. We'd have a great time when we played it, but it was just not that interesting outside of the table. And that's a big part of it, I'm sure, for you, for, for your listeners. Yes. Yeah. Man, you, want, you want to talk about it with your mates. You get excited about ideas and have your mates call you a dickhead for trying this thing. And <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's the fun part. Yeah. I, I find that is what is about um, the recent Warhammer is there's a lot of list tailoring, a lot of list tra- changing yep. because it's that large scale where it allows you to play with those things. The model might be the, or the unit might not be the most like a points efficient, but it has that cool rule that really benefits later on in your army, maybe turn two or three that you can't get out of a certain mo- like unit, which sort of hits that point a little bit where it does have the minutia. Is there anything that you don't enjoy about the hobby then? <laughs> <laughs> you enjoy the list ride and the competitiveness, the painting. What doesn't Trent Dennison like? Uh, I, there's there's one or two things I, I didn't like. Um, and I'll, I'll probably offend some people when I say this. So apologies in advance, friends. <laughs> um, uh, p- people get really sad sometimes when you play the game, you know, and I think we forget sometimes it's just little toy soldiers, right? We're just pushing little bits of plastic around a table and pretending that we're generals. It's, it's a ridiculous, <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to be emotionally invested in, but you know, when someone is having a bad game um, and I'm playing them and, and they're losing and that's really getting them down and they're getting frustrated, um, I find that really uncomfortable and difficult to manage because it's it's not my responsibility to manage your emotions, champion. Right? I'm, I'm, it's my it's it's our job to have fun at this game. Um, the the result is going to be one of us is going to win or lose but it's our objective to try and have fun and I can't make someone else have fun. So I got to a point um, playing at tournaments where the first couple of rounds were really frustrating for me because it would usually be a relatively easy win for me. And people in our community got to know me. And as soon as they sit down at the table, they'd have already beaten (laughs) themselves. Like they would have literally sat down at the table and gone, fucking playing general. I can't win. That's it. You've already lost the game, mate. I don't care what, what happens with dice. You're not going to beat me because you think you're not going to beat me. And so they're depressed, they're upset, and it made for a really unfun experience for me. Once I got through those first few games, I'd be playing people that I knew that were awesome, that we'd have great, we'd have great games and I had an awesome time. But I got really annoyed at having to, to wade through those really bad, unfun experiences to get to the good stuff. And again, our hobby is one that is generally attractive to people that are slightly less socially skilled. And that is one of the side effects of that is those people don't often know how to navigate their emotions all that well. This is something they're passionate about that they love. And when they are feeling like they're not good at it, when they're not good at something that they have put a lot of self-worth into, it makes them feel really down on themselves, which is, you know, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve with our hobby, right? So yes, yeah, 
definitely. It's, it's this hard way to navigate through the hobby, mm-hmm. especially when it's not something that you can control on your end. It's something that you've got to somewhat manage, but you can't really because it's not all on you. It's not, well, it's, it's, it's not on you at all, mate, right? Yeah. That's the thing. It's not. <laughs> It's not your job to make someone have a good time. And, and sportsmanship as a fucking score is one of the dumbest things ever, right? That's one of the best things about war machines. They didn't have a, a sportsmanship score. And I think a lot of people were turned off by that initially because they're like, oh, you're going to have shit games. People are going to be dickheads. I had more better games of war machine than I ever did of Warhammer because you knew what to expect. Everyone was on the same page. We weren't going to pander to each other and try and pretend to be friends so that we could get a fucking five out of five on sportsmanship. Back off. Right. <laughs> right. Well, we you, ha- you even see that about Warhammer now in general with tournaments. People, a lot of people are turned off. Oh, they're going to be all whack players to win at all costs. Uh, they're going to be negative to play against because they're a competitive player. Well, you generally find it's nearly opposite. I know a lot of the listeners do go to tournaments anyway, so they know that feeling from going to their first tournament. Hmm. Um, but it, is it a, definitely a big outside feeling from people that aren't competitive gamers? It's a, re- it's a really... I can understand why they would expect that, right? But mm-hmm. it was the absolute opposite of that in my experience. I had I had very, very few games of War Machine where I was like, this guy's trying to fucking smash me and he doesn't give a fuck about how I'm feeling in this game. You know, because we are both play hard but play fair, mate, we would be having fun. And we'd be like, I'm going to fucking smash that guy. Wow! You know, getting stuck in. And yeah. that's, that's, that's how it should be. That's how it should be, right? You shouldn't have to worry about pandering to social cues because you're going to get scored poorly if you don't that's dumb play a fun game with a dude that you've just met because it's fun that's it the most fun you can have is playing against a new person that you don't know of and you both find you're on the similar level competitiveness and you got the similar personality in terms of you play similar and you're just like well we both connected really well and you have the most fun because i never knew who you were or never met you before and now it's part of someone or the gaming group. Or we both just met a cool person, man. It's like, yeah. how good's that? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an awesome feeling, especially when it's at a tournament as well. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> so what point did you decide to go from, I'm going to be competitive and go to worlds and everything else to I'm going to start going into display painting? Cause I know that is my biggest thing is how does someone go from those two extremes? Cause mm. most people do find them, extremes to the either way normally people are in the middle and they're like oh i enjoy a bit of hobby a bit of gaming they don't either play ultra competitive or they don't go to painting competitions yeah i think and again this is this is a personality trait right i get hyper fixated on something and i I focus on it at pretty much the exclusion of everything else and and until i become as good as i can possibly be at it but I feel like the painting is a little bit more healthy than the, than the competitive war gaming <laughs> um, because I don't necessarily have to compete uh, internationally, which I have, I'll tell you a second. But um, no, look, so I've got an in Guild Ball, uh, which was sort of what I moved into after War Machine. Uh, as I said, they're only like six, six person teams, right? So I sort of thought to myself, yeah, I'm going to really fucking try and paint these guys really good. And I did a, I did an awesome team and, couple of people like hey do you want to paint this team for me and so again it was just commission stuff i was like yeah for sure but i was really enjoying painting as you know to a higher standard whereas with warhammer with war machine you're painting so many models it's just like we just want to get them done and i was fast and good but i wasn't great you know so being able to do six models eight models ten models was really really 
liberating in a way that I didn't expect it to be. Um, and I got uh, a ticket to a class uh, for a for a painter called Meg Maples, used to be Privateer Press's um, in-house painter. And she moved to Australia and was teaching classes. And it was a display painting class. And I sort of, I thought to myself, I'm going to go to this class. I'm going to learn, you know, a little bit of stuff. It's going to be really helpful for my, for my gaming applications. And I just had an amazing time. And I was like, wow, I really, really had a good time. Really got a lot of knowledge out of this. I think I want to do this more. And just found myself diving straight into display painting. And um, so much so that whereas in the past I was getting up and thinking about War Machine and Warhammer and Guild Ball, I was getting up and thinking about what am I going to paint today? How am I going to paint this differently? What new technique can I try? Um, and and all that, that same sort of hyper-fixated, focused mentality, but on display painting. And um, I ended up flying over um, to Germany and, and had a, a two-day two private coaching with one of the best painters in the world. Um, and then I ended up flying over to Italy and the Netherlands to compete in uh, Scale Model Challenge and Monte Sansovino Show, which are like the end-of-year huge display painting events. I'll send you a link to them later, by the way, Matt. You'll be fucking blown away. Um, I've seen quite a few of them because I follow a lot of the the display painters on YouTube yeah. and stuff and then your stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm sure the fans aren't. So I'll post them in the podcast episode as well. Yeah, so guys like, guys like um, you know, particularly what the Golden Demon was just on the weekend, right? So David Aroba, um, uh, Ruben Martinez, Sergio Calvo, you know, all these names that probably aren't too familiar in the world of, of Warhammer are going and competing in Golden Demon now and they're fucking cleaning up, like <laughs> just absolutely cleaning up because that that is their absolute focus and fixation is is display figures. So, yeah, it, it was it was kind of like a natural transition. It wasn't really intended. It just came about because of I um, see myself as a holistic hobbyist that loves playing and loves painting. Um, it just happens that the traits that made me really, really good as a gamer are the same traits that allowed me to pour my time and energy into becoming a good painter as well. Okay, that makes sense. Because I suppose you you seem to me like someone that challenges themselves constantly to try new things. I think that's obviously the greatest way to learn and get better at stuff. A lot of people find they paint or play in a rut and you're doing the same thing over and over again. If you're not trying new things, new techniques, new ways to play armies, you're not going to learn and like sort of get further along in those experiences. You're absolutely correct. And let me give you the scientific reason why, because <laughs> in my actual real job, I am about coaching and development of people. So we all have this thing called the comfort zone, which we're familiar with, right? So the comfort zone is doing things that we feel comfortable in. Um, there's also a zone which we call the panic zone. So that's when you're way outside of your comfort zone. You're like, holy fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, and you stress out, right? You flip out. You Obviously, when you're painting a model, it's not like you're going to fucking flip the table and run away. Right, but it's like I can't do this. I oh, fuck this. This is too hard. There's a zone in between those two, and it's called the zone of learning, um, and it's found just outside your comfort zone. When you stretch yourself outside of your comfort zone, you create new neural pathways and you learn new ways of doing things, and that's the zone of learning. So, if you don't challenge yourself, if you don't do different things, um, you will not improve. You will not change. You will not evolve. But if you try too far, if you reach too far, you'll get into the panic zone and you won't actually retain anything. You won't learn anything. So the key is constantly pushing yourself to do new things, but not trying to do something that's just crazy, right? Measured steps. 
you eat the elephant one bite at a time. Yeah. Well, I definitely experienced the panic zone. I followed <laughs> one of your um, skin painting tutorials where you <laughs> done the uh, the flesh tone and then you airbrush over the top of it uh, Sorry. to blend the two. And I'm like, tried it. It did not look anything like I was expecting because I think it was the panic zone and it didn't um, – I don't think I learned anything from it. That's a that's a perfect example, right? It's a perfect example because it's it's you know non-metallic metal. People look at it and they go, "I don't know how to fucking do that." But sometimes you sit down, you go, "I'm going to paint this non-metallic metal," and you you just fuck it, right? You, and and you don't know what you're doing, and you feel like throwing your brushes away, and you walk away from the table, and you're like, "That was fucked. I got nothing out of that," right? But if you try and do something a little bit different, I'm going to try a new color that I've never painted, but I'll follow the same techniques I've always followed, or I'm going to try a new paint range, but I'm going to follow the same techniques or I'm going to try this type of approach and build up to that, right? That's that's how you achieve that level of result. But yeah, that it should be easy, that, that tutorial that I did. <laughs> and I, I felt like it was really easy, but I've had a lot of people tell me exactly what you just said there, which is like, Deno, I did everything you did and it looks fucking nothing like it. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one then. <laughs> That's the, I that's enjoyed the trying trying mm. it, but I think that your painting style just leans into that so easily. Uh, a lot of people don't paint like that, so I think we really struggle. But I did enjoy trying it, though, at least. That's good, yeah. I, I do a little bit of Twitch streaming where I, where I paint models and stuff, and I talk a lot about the mentality around it and, and, and having fun while I'm painting and you know, just doing it for, for, for experience. But I often forget right, that I can do something in 60 minutes that would take someone else five hours because I've got 20 years of painting behind me that they don't. Right. So I make things look a lot more simple than they actually are. <laughs> and I'm, I'd have seen a lot of comments on all your videos or whatever. I was like, how does it, this take six minutes? It's like, yeah, people go, oh, it took me five hours to get nowhere even close to this. Yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry. Where, at what point did you decide that you wanted to take this painting to the next level? And then why did you decide you wanted to start making videos and record it and stuff like that? Uh, it's yeah, really, really good question. I guess I had a, I had a huge explosion of followers on Instagram. I, I don't really even know how, and, and it's def, it's stalled out in the last 12 months. So I went from, I went from about 700 followers to 11,000 in the space of about six months. Um, and then over the next couple of years, I went from 11 to 20,000. 20, um, really, really huge explosion. And what came with that was a fuck ton of questions. Just <laughs> all the fucking time, people are just uh, sending me messages. How do you do this? Oh, what color is this? Why, why did you do this? You know, like it just, it was a lot. Um, the, very, the, the very first thing that drove me to, to want to stream was to be able to answer those questions in a way that was less obtrusive like i was spending half an hour to a, every day replying <laughs> to people's questions you mean typing like, out so you couldn't paint yeah and i was like i'm, I'm not painting <laughs> like i could be painting in this half an hour and so in the end i was like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do some streaming and if people want to come and ask me questions on there i'll answer their questions on there and that way i can still paint um but there's also there's also a point i think in um any learning experience any any um, goal that you're pursuing where um, you have to try to teach to improve yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a martial arts mentality, right? Uh, at a certain point, you can't progress any levels until you've started teaching because 
And what I found when I was teaching was that it was forcing me to explain things that I was not thinking about, you know, cognitively, I was just doing them and trying to explain why I was doing things forced me to reevaluate those processes in my mind and create new opportunities for me to go, you know what, I might actually try something different because I've learned more about X, Y, Z, and I can, I can potentially improve that now. So the teaching forced me to reevaluate the way that I was painting and created uh, you know, new layers and new levels to my painting that I didn't have before. So um, it was partly selfish around creating more time for myself. And it was also partly, you know, to, to help other people and, and, and help impart some of the knowledge that I'd gained. So, but mostly selfish. <laughs> do you enjoy teaching then? I, I do. Yeah. I think um, I've, I've taught a few uh, painting classes now. Um, I did, did one in Melbourne, did one in uh, quite a few in Brisbane um, and, you know, look, looking to do some more in the not too distant future. I've, I've done judging um, for a lot of international and, and, and competitions in Australia. And, uh, you know, one of the great experiences about that is being able to share, you know, the, the years of experience that I've had with other people and, you know, help them improve. And it's really satisfying for me, you know, to see those people that I've mentored continue to, to grow and improve. And, you know, there's a number of those painters in Australia now that, that have probably exceeded my own capabilities um, in, in no small part thanks to my coaching and development. <laughs> so i love it yeah it's, it's really really fun really okay. rewarding so the being able to see your like people that you've taught or experienced painting with being able to see them grow further is that's what you most enjoy most about teaching yeah i think i think so like it's i'll go sort of a little bit of field here right we one of the things i talk about on my on my streams and and um at, with other painters is just this thing like like style so if you if you're not super into display painting, you might not be as across this. But every country sort of has a very unique painting style, right? So if you look at the UK, it's very much tailored towards that Games Workshop style of painting. You know, you've got you've got ultra smooth blends, clean, crisp colors, sort of a general highlighting. Everything's done to the same sort of level of you know illumination across the piece. If you then go to Spain. They are, they are way more chromatic. They have incredible, crazy color blends. They're a lot more airbrush focused, right? They do a lot more um, dynamic lighting and they're just like almost polar opposites to, to the way the UK um, uh, paints. And then you've got, you know, like, like Poland, um, which, are, which are even more like hyper-realistic and, and like even more focused on technique. Um, you know, you've got Russia, which comes from a much more historical sort of background, right? And so you have these sort of more muted styles, but super realistic looking. Um, you know, the Italians, which are kind of like a hybridization of all three of those. And so the reason I'm, I'm telling you about this is because one of the great things about talking about painting and, and, and coaching and helping people in Australia is it was kind of starting to see an Australian style evolve now and one of the coolest things about that is feeling like I've, you know, been a, a help in shaping the way that our, our community, our painting community is driving um, in a, in a really interesting way. You know, it's, it's not been me 
saying everyone go this way, right? It's just been, it's just sort of happened organically via, you know, me providing feedback and saying you should try this or do this. And it's naturally evolved our community and our scene in a way that's um, different to other other countries in the world, which is really exciting. So that, that um, cultural painting demographic that we're starting to see evolve is also a really interesting and fun thing to be a part of as well as, you know, the, the, the teaching and, and helping people be better. That's, that's a really fun thing to see evolving over the last few years. I didn't really even realize that. I, I knew there was different styles like in more of the European countries because mm. they're more rooted in that sort of art, but I yeah. didn't really think about an Australian style. And I suppose it makes sense that you're involved with it all because Australian people generally seek out Australian creators. And then if you're putting content out there for people that are in this region, they're going to naturally gravitate towards it and try and not copy, but emulate and put towards your techniques on their model. So it's, yep. it's great to hear that that's the way that we're evolving and we have our own scene <laughs> as Australians like to have in, in, its, in general. It's, yeah, it's, re- it's really cool. It's a really exciting time right now. So our, our painting display painting competition called Crimson Brush, which is held at CanCon um, every year, which is, I'm, I'm the organizer. Thank you. Uh, another <laughs> one of my many talents. <laughs> um, it, last year we had three, nearly 300 entries. Now, uh, to give you some sort of comparison, Monte Santavino and Scale Model Challenge, the two that I went to in Europe, 3,000 and 5,000 entries, right? So we're small fry compared to the European scene. But 300 is is double the last year's number of entries. And the standard this year was was through the roof. It was, it was the best it's ever been. And there was a really noticeable, um, you know, Australian style starting to come through. And, you know, I think right now at this point in time, we're, we're on the verge of some really big advances in the Australian display painting community um, such that we'll now, you know, we've, we've got a couple of painters that are really well known in the international scene. Um, Dave Colwell's big Warhammer painter. Many people have seen his face marines. He's an incredible guy, lives in Melbourne. Um, Andrew Buckley, another another Warhammer guy who paints some crazy stuff. Um, a lot of a lot of people know those guys overseas and we're starting to to breed more painters that are going to be like that over the next few years. So good time to get into display painting. I'll try and, for the international listeners and people that aren't aware, I'll try and link as many as this as I can so people can get a visual image for themselves. Would you be able to just give a maybe a brief dumbed down explanation of maybe what you're seeing in our Australian style, just so people can get a, well, if they're driving or something like that, can get a visualization for themselves. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a hard thing to put into words, but <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Um, yeah. So the, the, the way I describe the UK scene, you know, it's, it's very much focused on golden demon. Um, and as you know, we, we haven't had golden demon for many, many years. Um, we, we are much more influenced by European competitions like Monty and Scale Model Challenge, which are um, the, the key difference between European judging and, and um, Golden Demon is Golden Demon has a first, second, third in every category, and that's it, right? In open judging, there is a gold award and there's a silver award and there's a bronze award, but there can be as many golds as the judges deem are worthy of golds can be as many silvers as the judges deem worthy of silvers and so on. And so what you tend to see happen in a, in a golden demon is people tend to be very much competitive, closed off, 
you know, because they're competing. It's, it's, there's only one goal. So everyone's working against each other. And that's what encourages people to keep things secret. They don't show their stuff before the event and they do these big reveals. European competitions, there's, there's not really that competition. If both of your entries are good enough for gold, you'll both get a gold, right? So what that encourages is a much more collaborative community approach where people are trying to help each other, which is a huge thing and, and, and one thing I'm really supportive of. And what we've found over the last few years because of our competition being that European style is that the best painters that we've got um, have been sharing their styles, sharing their techniques and being absolutely transparent and open with the way they paint. So you're certainly seeing a lot of my influence, which is um, super heavy contrast, you know, highly saturated, um, big, bold sort of projects. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of inspiration from Dave Colwell, who is a, a technical wizard who does super soft blends. Um, and so you're kind of starting to see a fusion of those two styles, which is, which is pretty unlike any other scene. You know, we, we're probably most similar at the moment to, uh, to the Spanish uh, or maybe the Italians. Um, but I do think we're, we're moving in a slightly different path to them and, um, it will be interesting to see what where we go in the next few years because we might find new inspiration in new areas that uh, we haven't seen in the past. But uh, yeah, if, if I was to ballpark what is going on in the Australian scene, it's it's big, highly contrasted models that have really high levels of technical skill. Thank you very much for that. I'm sure hopefully people can slightly visualise that. I'll post some of David and some of Trent's um, models on there just so you can get a, a comparison for later on um, ha I as someone that's slightly newer to the display painting and even just Warhammer in general and I know a lot of people do enjoy trying new things and trying busts or I know there's 3D printing models out there a lot more so you can get easy access to busts how did you get like your start going from Warhammer and miniatures to more display busts and get involved with the two? Because generally they're seen as two different scenes. How did you get involved with the other side of the scene? Uh, well, it sort of it sort of came about from that class with Meg. You know, she really opened my eyes to the scene. At her class, she had some figures that she'd brought along um, of her own work. One was a, a Magneto bust from, oh, sorry, not bust, a Magneto 75 mil figure from Night Models. It's fucking epic. Um, and I was blown away by it. I was like, man, that's sick. And there's another one. That was a, a Tywin Lannister bust, which I actually bought, I, I bought it off her. Um, I bought a painted bust. I've got it in my cabinet. Um, and that was around the time when Game of Thrones had just come out and everyone was just like fucking losing the, losing the plot on Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I, I just looked at it and said, man, this is fucking sick. And so I just went out and tried to find companies that did, you know, busts and figures. And it was a lot harder to find back then. Um had to buy online. You had to wait three weeks for them to get here. And that's one of the things that made it hard for the scene in Australia to really take off. Um, but we have a few, you know, distributors now and, and, and um, manufacturers uh, that sell to a couple of key people in, in Australia, um, you know, Stonebeard Miniatures, um, Irresistible Force at, at, at um, uh, Shaler Park has quite a collection of display models and busts now as well. So it's starting to, filter through and um, it's much easier to get into that side of things now than it ever was. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's nice to see that we're able to get these things. Cause I know seeing a lot of the sculptors from the Europe, you're like, Oh, I'd love to get that model. And then it's like 30 bucks for shipping. Yep. And then 
all these and then these they mount up because it's all in pounds or in euros and it's just like it's exponentially out of our price range but thing the 3d printed models you can get now as well has definitely opened it up heaps it's a much more accessible time to be a display painter for sure um and 3d printing is a whole world that i've only barely scratched the surface of so there's i'm sure there's a lot of good bus out there that it, you could print for five dollars i will say that i'm sure there's a lot of shit house ones too right so <laughs> yeah. if you are genuine about painting display figures i would not start with 3d printed because you won't know a good one from a bad one you're better off buying from a distributor manufacturer that knows what a good one is so that then you'll actually know what to look for but anyway that's a separate discussion <laughs> you were saying earlier you you're running the crimson brass what did you made you decide to sort of what into getting organizing painting so this is this is one of the fucking things that annoys me about myself all right <laughs> i don't have many things that annoy me about myself but i just i i get frustrated when i see things and i'm like i could fucking do that better and so i do it and i do it better <laughs> But I find myself, and and yeah, you know, to those Warhammer tours, the the War Machine tours, I used to organise the whole thing, right? I used to organise all the flights and everything for ten dudes, right? It was wild. You're the we, Warhammer dad. Yeah, I was, and and I sort of fell into that in War Machine, and I fell into that in Guild Ball, <laughs> and I got into the display painting. I was like, this is great. It's just me. I just get to sit at my desk <laughs> and paint my fucking models and have a great time. And then Meg. Um, who was the original organizer of the the Crystal Dragon, which is which is now called the Crimson Brush, um, came to me and sort of said, "Look, hey, Deno, I'm, I'm really struggling this year. I'm having a lot of health problems. I don't think I'm going to be able to run the event. You're the only guy I trust to do it. Can you do it for me?" And I said, "Yes, I can," because I was really passionate about the scene. I really wanted the scene to continue, and you know that for me felt like a really key part of our scene was this one event every year that everyone sort of knew and came to. Um, and so I ran it uh, that year and then we had a really great year and then I decided to run it again next year. Then Meg came back for one year and then Meg decided to give it all away and I took it back over and have been doing it for the last couple of years. So I've run it basically for the last five years um, through just basically wanting to make sure that it was done well and not, not really trusting very many other people to do a good job. Uh, there are definitely people who could do a good job. I'm sure. And I, I'm, I'm sure there are people who could do a better job than I do. Um, as it's gotten bigger, it's gotten more complex. And I, last year, you know, I had a team of people helping me, which I would not have been able to do without those people. Um, you know, this year I'm really excited. I think the experiences we had um, in the 2023 version has given me you know, a lot of impetus to want to continue to improve it and make it as big as some of the European events. Um, but it's uh, it's not really about ego anymore, I don't think. I think it's just about I really want to help our scene, really want to help our community grow and, and be the best it can be. And I'd happily give it over to someone if anyone wants to put their hand up for it, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely enjoyed it as someone that's never been into, into a painting competition before or done anything similar. I enjoyed the whole approach of the tournament, not the tournament, the competition. And it felt having the open system it felt like I was more, well, not welcome, but I felt more enticed to put my models in because at least I'm available to receive something, if anything, 
rather than it just being the exclusive three models that are just painted and you they like the look of that model over another model rather than technique and everything else. Yeah. I'll give you another reason and to, and, and absolutely mate like that, that the open competition does that right it encourages people to want to enter you know because in many ways you're not getting judged against other people you're just getting judged against yourself and how well you've done. So um but you know we we try to make it a very much community focused event. We don't do prizes for first, second, third, golds, whatever. We don't give out prizes like that. Anyone that enters goes into a lucky dip uh, and we give away a prize to everyone that's entered a model. And I much prefer that to seeing someone who's already won a medal and knows they're good to getting all of the prizes. Like, fuck that, mate. Like, I want the guy who's entered his first model, who's come to his event for the first time, I want that guy to get the coolest prize at the tournament because he's going to walk away and go, that was fucking awesome. It doesn't matter how I did. What matters is I had a good time and I, you know. That was me. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's awesome, right? So yep. um, that's that's what we want to, that's what we want to have people walking away from the experience. And unfortunately this year, because the standard was so high, you know, we had a little bit of the opposite effect going on where people were walking in and looking at it and going, I can't compete with this. I, I'm no chance. So we have got something in the works to address that for next year. So Okay. Yep. That's fair enough. Do you find uh, COVID had a bit of an impact on your first few years there as well? Well, CanCon obviously got cancelled um, in, in 2021, um, didn't run at all. And there was a there was a pretty strong possibility that would, would not come back. Um, that's from, from the organisers themselves. And 2022 was a big year for CanCon. And... Um, it was really important to me that we ran the painting event if CanCon was running. Um, COVID, we actually had Omicron was kicking off around that time uh, yep. um, at start of 2022, start of last year. And it was really an impactful time, unfortunately, for a lot of people. Um, and the first, the first year of the Crimson Brush was absolutely smaller than probably we would have uh, anticipated and liked. Uh, but it was a really good thing to be at CanCon to support the event, um, you know, to add a little bit to the event. And we were able to, as a result of that, do a lot more digital. You know, we actually did some live streams for the event and we did a live judging stream for that year. And I think if we were much busier, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And many, many, many people came this year and said to us, hey, I saw the stream last year. It looked awesome. That's why I wanted to come down this year. So, um blessing in disguise maybe that we were able to do that as a result of it being a little bit quieter which potentially helped make this year better and i suppose you're able to then continue it to 2023 this year because i think i always forget that cancon's at the start of the year and i think yeah. a lot of people we all refer to it as last year because it felt like yeah. it was last year yeah. 2023 um, this year yeah. yeah 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 so if you do want to check out this year's cancon stream we, we was there a vod and a few things posted there all, all of it's on my youtube there's a playlist which has every video from the stream we actually had three days of streaming we had um, interviews with with some of the um, best painters in australia we again did a live judging stream where we had um, three of the best painters in the world judging uh, the the entries. We had um, uh, the, the ceremony. We had uh, an interview with the judges after they'd done the judging stream to talk about, uh, you know, how their experience was and, and look at some of their models and share, you know, their wisdom. And then I had a little five-minute segment as well where I talked <laughs> about the event and so forth. So, yeah, all on my YouTube, uh, which is Big Dino Paints, and you can you can see pretty much 
I think it's about 12 hours of content if you want to watch that much about Little Toy Soldier painting. But <laughs> it was good. It's a good yep. weekend. It'll be all linked below anyway. So I'll, I'll try, like I said before, I'll try and get as many links as I can because I know a lot of these things are visual-based and not audio-based. Mm. Yes. So it's a little bit different there. But hopefully people will sort of feel encouraged to enter their first models in because it's just like a first tournament. It's not as scary as you think it is, and it's a very fun experience. Yes. Agree uh, completely. <laughs> Have you got a favorite model range at the moment that, is sort of taking your inspiration because I know I, as someone that has watched your wizardry over the past few weeks of like, Oh, I've just finished this model. And then you're like, Oh, well two days later, here's three more models. I know you've been doing, what were the three, was it the three aspects of something? I can't quite remember. Yeah. So there was a, there's a Kickstarter a few years ago from a company called scale 75, where they did figures for each sign of the Zodiac. Okay. Um, it was called the Zodiac signs of the Zodiac Kickstarter. If you want to look it up. Um, but they they released yeah figures that that were representative of models from the zodiac and i absolutely um fell in love with those models the kickstarter arrived 12 months ago and they sort of sat there until i was like yep this is the time and so i did a full scene of each of the uh 12 models were split up into their elements so there was you know an air element which had all of the air zodiac sign figures together earth fire um and water and so yeah I, I sort of went through over the last four or five weeks and did all 12 of those models in in, in a big collection of um, just casually <laughs> just casually yeah in a collection of vignettes which is um, which is awesome I actually sold them yesterday too so oh but, very nice congratulations yeah, thank you um yeah so that was that was sort of what i what i was working on um I, I love painting the marvel crisis protocol minis man i think they're really really clever designs in a lot of cases you know integrating scenery into the figures which is fun and, and creates you know some fun painting challenges and some different techniques you can use um probably probably this there's there's a few ranges that are that are um coming up soon a few companies that are doing stuff i really love um black crow models do really great stuff big child creatives do really great stuff um and then Nico Galaxy and Inu Kingdoms do some really great stuff. And my next big project is going to be a cyberpunk city. Um, and so I've got about, I think I've got 13 figures from the Nico Galaxy range. They're all cyberpunk chicks. Um, so I'm going to do a full city. Very cool range. I've, yeah, it's awesome. I've been uh, learning how to wire electronics. So I'm going to have <laughs> LED lights and flashing signs and then hopefully ultraviolet paints as well so it's a big project I'm, i've been thinking about it planning it for about six months 12 months sometimes these big projects that i do take a while to fully formulate and get all of the bits and pieces together but yeah this one's probably going to start soon i think those nico ones have taken my interest i picked up i think it was the candy charm Can candy chan yeah, yeah she's yeah. she's a champion i've painted her they're very um very cool unique models and i think they come from a nice range so if people want to check them out anyway uh, I'll link more things below. <laughs> yep. I'm just going to remember them all now. <laughs> a lot of links. Um, yeah, Nico yeah. Galaxy, if you want, uh, so you can go check out their range on their website. Stonebeard Miniatures actually does stock Nico Galaxy, so you can oh, buy cool. them direct from Stonebeard and they'll ship them in the next couple of days. So it's it's really, really cool for us to have a distributor in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest so. thing I think for us is seeing all these cool models and you can't get them because they cost way too much. And and all of them are all resident stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so when when you were soaking early, you sort of organising crimson brush and things like that. Do you enjoy the judging aspect of it all? 
I, I really do. Yeah, it's, it, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I, I've done a number of judging things and I've, I've always pushed to make those judging things be um, done publicly. It's, it's a, something I'm really passionate about um, because in many ways I feel like judging um, is actually a form of teaching, right? You, you are teaching people in probably a harsh way sometimes um, what they need to do better. And when that's done privately and quietly, um, it's often hard to get that feedback. You know, we, we also have limited time and we also have people who have limited social skills who are willing to run forward and ask those questions after a competition, be like, hey, hey, why, why didn't I get a gold? Why don't you get a bronze? The judges don't always have time to answer those questions or maybe they can't give you as much detailed information. So by putting it publicly and, and transparently, you also give the opportunity for people to hear that feedback directly um, in an unfiltered way that can sometimes be the way that, that, that really strikes a chord with them and helps them understand what they, what they were missing. Um, I'm sure it's gone the other way in some cases as well, where people have thrown their toys out of the cot and said, fuck this, I don't want to hear anymore. You're being too mean to my stuff and I'm just here to paint models, so fuck off. But I haven't had too many people say that to me. So all of the judgings that we've done at Crimson has been done live and online and in person, there's been a, a gallery of people listening. Um, and then I also did one for Kingdom Death. They did a painting competition, online competition, and we did that live streamed as well. So um, I love it. I think it's a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to um, help people on their journey. I have no filter. I will absolutely. <laughs> oh, really? I would never have guessed that. <laughs> I absolutely am ruthless. Like I will, I will just fucking hammer some pieces, and I, I went. I also do a bit of feedback on my on my streams, and I, I say this at the start, right? We 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 spend too often telling people, "Oh man, this is so great." Particularly in the social media world, right? You'll get a hundred people post your fucking models, fantastic. I don't need to hear that, right? I don't think people need to hear that. I think what people genuinely need to hear is someone who is speaking truthfully about what they see as areas for improvement. Now, this, the key part about that, right, is you don't have to take everything that person says and immediately do it, right? You have to learn to accept that feedback, evaluate it in the context of your knowledge, your understanding, and then work out what you want to impart and what you don't want to, you know, because my feedback comes from my lens on painting models and the things that I value, but not everyone values the same things when they're painting figures or, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So that key, that, that moment is you need to be able to say, I'm going to take that on board and I'm just going to discard that. Unfortunately, most people immediately default to that emotional response, which is, I spent 24 hours painting that model and you're telling me it's shit. That makes me feel bad. I'm going to not listen to you. You're wrong. It's, it's hard, right? But the best thing you can do is accept that feedback with the intent that in which it's given, which is to help improve you. So um, I am absolutely ruthless on judging streams. I will continue to be ruthless on judging <laughs> streams. I will say it how it is and people will be upset by that. But I hope that at the end of that, those people will be upset and will learn from it and will hopefully be able to find their next steps to improve. 
No, I, I didn't get the chance to experience it on my end because my model wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the guys I was sitting next to when they were doing the live judging uh, was, I think it was, I think it was Tim from the, uh, the Sydney Painters Guild, and yep. he was. It was very interesting to see him take on board the judging that you guys were putting on his models and the crimson brush. Uh, it was so it was interesting to see sort of from the outside of two different aspects from hearing someone judge it to someone receiving the judgment from them. How did he take it? He took it wonderfully. He he recognized all the flaws that he saw there and realized where he could fix the the issues. But I bet you saw, I bet you saw his heart melt a little bit. Hey, when he's just like, Oh, they're hurting me. (laughs) Yeah. When he was, uh, I think they were judging two of his own models against himself to figure out where the, the gold standard was. And he was like, Oh, they're both my models. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really hard thing, mate. Like because you pour so much of yourself into a figure, um, and probably more so than than gaming. You know, it's just you. You're just sitting at a table by yourself for hours and hours and hours. And you know, when when someone is is looking at a piece of yours, in many ways they're looking at a piece of you. You know, a, a, a very vulnerable and 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 a part of you that you've shared. And it's 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 fucking hard sometimes to hear people tear you to strips, but it'll make you better. So and there's no dice to blame. There's no dice, mate. That's it. You can't fucking slip about dice in that. <laughs> I did also see that you're doing work with Chris Wolfe and James Mayberry coming up for Sydney Slaughter. Am I? Fuck. Yeah. No, no. I, I, uh, I did. Yeah, offer them a little bit of assistance in terms of promotion and help them with a few bits and pieces. Um, I, I did tell them I wouldn't be able to come down to judge. Um, I think they were hoping to get me to come down to judge, but I did say I wouldn't be able to. But I did recommend some people that hopefully they've they've gotten in touch with. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be doing a little bit of promotion for them, and hopefully they'll um they'll have a really good event. It's uh it's starting to take off here. We've got um you know we've got Crimson Brush, which we had in in January. We had the Arc Open, which was down in Melbourne in in May, which was tagged alongside the Arc 40K, which is a huge. 40k tournament one of the biggest in australia uh we've got the sydney display painters guild competition which is called the guilds in in july uh we've got sydney slaughter i think which is in the start of june um and then uh queensland model hobby expo in august up here in brisbane so it's getting to be a pretty full painting calendar and um yeah i've heard i've heard talk of something happening in canberra uh, maybe in the second half of the year um, and a few other people tossed up some ideas, maybe for another one in Brisbane, maybe a little bit more uh, gaming focused, as opposed to that that um, uh, you know, model aircraft and, and tanks sort of scene, which is what QMHE is. So good times. I, I quite like the idea with Sydney Slaughter because they're having the painting tournament also be display painting alongside the actual gaming yeah. Warhammer tournament. Yeah, it's the right way to to approach building a painting um, event. You need to tack it onto something that's already successful. Um, and that's what they did with the ARC 40K and the ARC Open. That, that was exactly what it was. It was the same event um, and they're building off each other for next year. You know, I hope the same for the Sydney Slaughter where they're able to, to build on the success of their event and start a little nucleus of a painting scene that will help, you know, continue to grow. Um, but yeah, that, that's, what, that's what we did. I mean, our, our event that started 10 years ago now, Chris the Dragon started at KingCon at a little... It was a little thing, which had a couple of people entering stuff from shit, shit paint jobs. So <laughs> starts every, all that starts somewhere, mate. Yeah. It's a good blend as well for the two, the gaming and the painting scene. Yep. So it's nice to be able to have the two scenes that probably wouldn't interact a whole lot 
Like I know, I I feel like the can like Crimson Brush with CanCon because it's happening at the same time as two very large tournaments, it makes it a little bit harder. But when you've got the the two gaming systems and the painting system going at the same time, you can somewhat blend it a little bit better than I suppose just a standalone painting scene. Yeah, well, Arc Forty K really really great template for people okay. if if you're looking to start an event or you want to you know invite more people to painting. Arc 40K did exactly the same thing. It's a huge 40K tournament. A large percentage of their entries were from 40K players who brought some of their stuff in, you know, and then they got a cross-section of display painters that came along as well. And everyone was really excited at the end of that event and everyone's really excited to see what happens next year because the display painters cleaned up, right? But it was really inspiring for the 40K players to see the level of painting that was there. They were just like blown away. Um, and, And I think, you know, that's, that's going to inspire a few of those guys to go, you know what, fuck, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and do something good next year. Um, and that's, that's how it'll, that's how it'll grow. So your Sydney Slaughter, right template, it's going to be successful. Yep. Have you got any tips for some of these players trying to come over from army painting and to come into more display bus painting? Oh, whew. look, it's, it's a different world, right? Um, I, I know a lot of fantastic army painters who win best painted in armies and, you know, just absolutely are phenomenal painters in that field that go to a display painting tournament and, and aren't even in, in contention um, because it's a different discipline. Uh, there's the, the being a good army painter is about achieving good results quickly. And the display painting scene is about achieving great results in as long as it takes. Now, um, you can still do that quickly, but that's, again, there's there's a little bit more involved in getting it to that level. So I, I think probably the, the only piece of advice I give someone is, is just, just fucking enter, right? Like just do it, throw your stuff in there because you will, you will see when you put your models beside someone else's that is doing this, you know, more seriously, you'll see the difference, right? You will look at it and you'll go, wow, that's got more value contrast or wow, that's got clearer delineation or wow, that basing is more consistent or wow, there's just that X, Y, Z element that makes it better than mine. And I think that alone will be enough to start you on the path. So that's my advice is just fucking go because you'll learn a lot. Yeah, I noticed a lot just with putting in my little bust compared to all the other few hundred busts there. It was just like Mm. the drastic difference between something that, is probably the top of the range for my army painting style to display painting is just completely drastic. It's not even in the same sort of realm. <laughs> it, 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 it isn't. And that's okay, right? It's, it's okay to say that, mate, because I started where you are, right? So if I can do it, you can. That's that's the thing. you got to look at it and go, well, that guy can fucking do it, so I can too. But yeah, again, then we come back to how do you get from, <laughs> how do you eat the elephant? One bite at a time, mate. Yeah, and I think... A lot of people also know of um, Vincent Venturella and he was someone that said a lot of times he hated painting. Like he hate painted armies. He hate painted models. And now look at Vince now. Like he's putting out a lot of teaching videos and doing a lot of high level display painting. And that was from someone that hated painting. So if he can do it and put some time, like I know he's a magician and somehow pulls out time from nowhere. Like has, like he's somehow has more time than you. Like oh, I don't, that's, that's a big call, mate. That's a big call. He has a podcast, a video, plays wargaming, and also paints a lot just as much as you. But like 
you, I have a full-time guys. job, mate, so I think <laughs> I beat you. That is his full-time job. You're both uh, time wizards, I like to refer to them. Like yeah. there's just how much how do you have so much time in the day, which obviously is through painting quickly is the biggest cheat. But like we both a lot of people are like, where where does that time come from to allow you to do that? So if people like you and Vince can go from the more army style to be involved with display painting or high quality painting, a lot of other people can. It's just the time investment, I think, is the yeah, biggest. It thing. is. I actually did a, a, a interview with an artist with Vince, which is on his channel. Oh, did channel. you? Yeah, okay. yeah. So you can go and watch that if you want. I do actually talk a lot about Vince acknowledges that I'm faster than him, by the way. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, in that interview, I, I've got that's recorded for posterity, mate. So I can say that I can always have okay. that. <laughs> I'll um, add it to below the, the podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Vince and I actually talked a lot about how how do you have that discipline to to find the time, right? Um, and, and the the answer is it, it it comes down to what are you willing to sacrifice, right? We've all we've all got a certain number of hours in the day, and I don't have any more hours than you. I'm not Inspector Space Time. I can't manufacture extra time. I, I just choose to sacrifice other aspects of my life to allow me to have the time to paint. Now, um, not everyone has that luxury, right? Some people have kids. Some people have jobs that take up, you know, 60-hour weeks. That is just an ex- a thing that you will have to accept that you will not have the ability to do that. And as a result, you need to reevaluate your goals. So, it's about understanding your goals. It's about understanding what you're willing to sacrifice. And if you're not willing to sacrifice to achieve your goal, you need to reevaluate your goal. So talk a lot about it with Vince, but yeah, it's it for me. And as I said, I paint, I paint a couple of hours every day with, yeah, I've actually probably the last, the last six months, I haven't done it as much. Um, and that's not through anything other than, you know, just want, want to want to spend some time doing other things, playing board games, you know, doing X, Y, Z, but I know they'll they'll go they'll go months where I'll paint every day for three hours, and then you know I might take a month off. So, but I feel like I've reached that point now where I've got the skills in the bag. I don't need to be doing that discipline to try and improve my skills anymore. Now it's about I'm doing that discipline to try and achieve a project or, a, or an idea or a concept. So, a bit different. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask for some uh, words of wisdom at the end here, but I think you've well aptly explained the best way to get the most out of you. What um, Have you got any um, shout-outs or anything else before we end the podcast off then? Uh, oh, look, I'm, I, a lot, lot of wonderful people I've, I've been involved with over the last 20 years. You know, I've been, been in the miniature hobby since I was yeah, 12, 13, 14, back, back in the day. And um, over that period of time, there's been a lot of people who've shaped uh, – who I am as a, as a person, as, as a, as a player, as a, as a painter, um, you know, Gav Clark, who used to be the owner of Irresistible Force at Shayla Park, a uh, huge influence on my life. Wonderful man. Uh, got a lot of time for him. Haven't spoken to him about 12 months, but he's a great man. Um, so he's got nothing to do with anyone. I'm not going to shout him out and do anything for <laughs> anyone. Right. I just want to say he's a good bloke. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, like Meg Meg Maples was a huge influence on me in my early career. Um, she's still doing classes across Australia. I think she's got one coming up in Sydney soon. So um, if you want to you know, look into her classes, check that out. Um, we've got obviously sponsors for Crimson, which is Stainbeard Miniatures, whom I've already mentioned, Nico Galaxy, who I've already mentioned. I wasn't intentionally name dropping those guys <laughs> to, to promote them. It's just that, you know, they're, they're 
the people that I like, the models that I like, right? So, um, so yeah, check those guys out. And um, but yeah, just mate, the, the only the only thing I'll say is it, it, the 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 one thing that I try to preach and I try to practice is remember why we do this, and that's for fun, right? We 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 sometimes we forget about that, and we get so fixated on achieving a result. Right, I need to be painting this to get a fucking medal, or I need to finish this army for this tournament, or I need to win this game so I can win this tournament. It's not. It's not about that, mate. You're not gonna. You're not gonna go to your grave and be going. You know what? <laughs> Fuck yeah! I'm really glad that I hated my life painting those <laughs> models for two months just so I could get to a tournament with a fully painted army of little toy soldiers that no cunt's even gonna look at, right? And that's you know, Vince. Vince actually came out with a video the other week about that. He just said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I just want to paint for fun. And he's having the best time. It's, mm-hmm. it's, man, that's, that's the lesson. I think that more than anything else is what helped me improve is just remembering that I do this for fun. When something's fun, you want to do it more. When you do it more, you get better. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the lesson. Mic <laughs> drop. <laughs> awesome, Trent. Well, thanks for making time and coming on the podcast, mate. I do greatly appreciate it. A privilege and a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Well, enjoy the rest of your night. Good night. Good one, friends. Thank you for listening to Unidentified Wargamer. You can find links for the guests located in the description below. You can find the show on Twitter at U underscore Wargamer. And I will see you next week. Bye.